So yes, again, we are in the third of four weeks of Advent in which we remember yearly, along with Christians all over the world, the coming of Jesus clothed in flesh as a baby who was an immigrant, who was born of a teenage mom in a fragile uh, stable somewhere on the outskirts of Bethlehem. And during this Advent season, as the elders and I and Mandy and Ben, we all reflected on what was happening in the life of our church. This theme of hospitality is what continued to rise to the surface, wanting to elevate hospitality. And so this, this sermon series is called Elevating Hospitality. And it's, it's interesting because through the things, we've, we just celebrated a year of the soup kitchen. So I, I'd like us to clap for that. That's pretty great. Celebrated that on, on, on Friendsgiving and, uh, and, and Ben Higdon, who's our pastoral resident now, has been spearheading that. And that's, that's a huge way that we've been elevating hospitality and we're gonna continue to do that and those kind of feasts and things like that that Jake was mentioning, that's, that's something that, uh, that is part of the connection to the soup kitchen and godly play, this really hospitable space for children where we're not just trying to deposit a bunch of information into our children, but we're teaching them how to engage in the stories of scripture in really interactive ways and to be a part of that process and um, all of our teachers who are doing that work. And uh, so, so many ways that uh, we see just making a space. That's what hospitality is about. It's about making a space for people to be known and, and for new relationships to develop as well. But, but also a third thing, and that's we have to, we need a space that could be the grounds, the possibility for transformation in our lives. And that's something that we want to elevate here at Christ City, and we think we're doing it. And so as we continue to explore these themes in Advent, these ideas of preparing the way of the Lord uh, in our lives, in our hearts, in our church, uh, that's what we're thinking about and that's what we're talking about. And when, when we do that this morning, there's a figure that we started talking about last week who's all about preparing the way of the Lord. And he's not the first figure you think of when you think of hospitality. But man, has there been some interesting things that have been churning within me thinking about John the Baptist's ministry in relationship to Jesus and the coming of the Messiah and the ministry of Jesus in the world. And so we're looking at this passage this morning and the, the theme or the title of this sermon is, is what we're exploring. It's a joy that welcomes or makes room for sadness. So as we look at this passage, we're gonna be exploring this idea of these two extremely powerful emotions and how they often coexist together and why it's so important that they do and why our ability 
to host, to be hospitable, to create that space for the deepening of relationships, for the, the grounds of transformation, why joy and sadness need to be able to live together. So let's start here in this, uh, in this first couple of verses here. Verse two, it says, when John, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah, he sent his disciples to ask him, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? So at this point in time, Jesus has started a public ministry and he's been going about doing his thing. He's gonna, he, he tells, tells us what he's been up to in the, in the next couple verses, so we'll get there in a moment. But um, John the Baptist has since been locked up in prison in like a really, really serious kind of like Alcatraz-like prison. And he's, and he's there because John the Baptist, he, he's like one of those really straight shooter guys who's gonna really tell you like the truth and love, right? He's just gonna, he's gonna get you right? He's going to get you minus the love part. It's just the truth part, actually. And he's, he's, he's going to tell you what it is. And he's going to tell you when, um, when you're doing something that's wrong. And he did that to the Jewish king. And he's like, hey, you're not supposed to be married to that woman because he was your brother's wife. So that's not good. And uh, I'm sure John's disciples are like, John, you did, why you got to do that, man? Like, you just, you know, chill. Like you, you could talk to everybody else. You don't have to confront the whole freaking king of, of, of the land, but he does. And he gets locked up in prison. And as he's in prison, he's probably in prison for about six to six to nine months or so before he gets killed. And as he's sitting there, he's got a lot of time on his hands and he's hearing about the ministry of Jesus and he saw Jesus, he met Jesus, and he saw the divine signs that Jesus was indeed this Messiah, that, he, that John had been prophesying, for, uh, uh, prophesying about, that he'd been preparing the way for. And John, as we read about last week, he was saying, hey, I'm baptizing with water, but there's this guy coming after me. And he ain't gonna use just water, he's gonna use the He's going to use fire and the Holy Spirit for baptism. And he's got this winnowing fork. And with this winnowing fork, he's going to separate the chaff from the grain. And he's going to burn all the chaff up with an unquenchable fire. And John sees Jesus and he's so excited because he's like, this guy's going to make everything right. He's going to get rid of the evil kings like King Herod. Sure, he's got me locked up now. But once Jesus starts doing his thing, I'm going to get free. I'm going to I'm going to get out of this place and everything's going to be restored and right. And all the things, all the truth to power I've been speaking, they're about to find out what it is. And then he just keeps sitting there and waiting. And he's like, well, I did see like the Holy Spirit alight on Jesus and and words from heaven saying, this is my beloved son in whom I well please. And, and, I, and, I, and I saw and heard the beginnings of his ministry. It seemed like he was the guy. I mean, how, how could he have not been the guy? But I'm still sitting here in prison and there's still evil people at work and truth has not prevailed in the land. So maybe he's not the guy. Maybe, maybe I was wrong. 
And that's where John is sitting there. The guy who gave up everything, who lived out in the desert to try to hear what God was saying to him. And he was sure that this was the moment. This was the time when the Messiah came and all things would be made right. And he just sits there locked up. Seems like God's doing nothing. So he asks, he gets word through his disciples to Jesus. Are you the guy or not? Verse four, Jesus replies to John's disciples. He says, go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk. Those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are even raised. And the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. This sounds like some good Messiah work right here. How, how, how could you doubt it? How could you doubt that this is the Messiah, this is the guy? Unless you're the one locked up in prison. Unless you're the one who feel like you sacrificed everything, but God's not showing up from you. He's showing up for other people. There's other people that's got a testimony that they could have a child after being in, in, infertile after a while or, or they, their friend or their family member had cancer and they got well or their marriage worked out, but mine didn't. And my family member did pass away. And I haven't been able to have a baby. Why is God working over there while I'm locked up over here waiting for God? Anybody ever feel that way? Ooh. And Jesus proclaims these things. And at the end, knowing the problems that John might have hearing this, he says in verse six to John's disciples, blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. There's this incredible tension that comes up for me that I see all over scripture when we talk about Advent, waiting, waiting for God to show up. And, and John the Baptist, he knew, he knew the prophecies, he knew the scriptures, and he knew that when God showed up as the Messiah, that things were gonna be made right. He knew that the wicked would not continue to prosper anymore. But here the Messiah is, affirming, healing, lifting up all of these people, but not getting rid of the evil in the world. It's confusing. It's hard to make sense of. And I wanna, I wanna share with you this scripture that Jesus reads in the beginning of his public ministry. In the book of Luke, the Gospel of Luke, He's in his hometown and he sits in the seat of Moses where the teacher would sit and he's handed a scroll. And that scroll is from the book of Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, which said, prepare the way of the Lord, which 
was the voice crying out in the wilderness. Those were all his lines, all the lines that John the Baptist would use over and over and would be thinking on and meditating on and praying on, knowing that this time was coming when things were going to be made right and, and good was gonna flourish and evil was gonna be vanquished. And Jesus opens up that scroll to the place that, that is now Isaiah 61. And the scroll didn't have all those numbers in it at that time. So he, he opens up the scroll and he reads this out loud. He says in Isaiah 61, it's not on the screen, you'll just have to listen. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he stops right there. If he were to have continued reading just one more line, it would have said this, and the day of vengeance of our God. But he didn't read it. He closed the scroll before that line. And he stopped there and he said, today this is fulfilled in your hearing. That story ends with Jesus being driven out of his hometown. They try to kill him. And the question of evil and of oppression and those types of things, when we talk about the coming of the Lord, it is something that knots me up in all kind of ways. I don't have resolution about it. Because you know what? When I read these scriptures and I hear John's question, I, I'm right there. I'm saying, Jesus, why didn't you get him? Why didn't you save John? Out, out of anybody, why wouldn't you save him? Get him out of there. Don't let evil Herod behead the guy. Why didn't you save him? Why didn't you save my child? Why, why am I still alone? Why did I lose my family member to an act of violence? Why, Jesus, I don't want your platitudes. I want help. But I also wonder why didn't anybody else try to save John the Baptist? Why didn't all the people revolt and say, no, this man is a prophet. This man prepared the way of the Lord. We're coming up against this king. We're all gonna mobilize together and we're gonna say, no, this is wrong. This is unjust. And Jesus taught us about the kingdom of heaven. And he said that the righteousness would happen, that, that, that people would be taken out of prison and we're here for it. I wonder that too. And it brings me to this question, this very Adventy type of question. What possible reason, what, what possible benefit could it be for God to say, you know what, 
my, my best plan is to be funneled into a single human being that has to walk everywhere, that never travels more than a couple hundred miles from where he's born, that dies the most humiliating death at the time on a cross, that could only heal the people or would only choose to heal the people that he was in physical vicinity of. Am I the only one who's ever thought about these questions? John the Baptist did. He was a pretty important guy. He thought about that stuff as he was sitting in prison waiting for his day, not in court, but in front of a wild and unpredictable dictator. I think a lot of us might have been taught that Jesus was was coming to do something other than what he did. The relief of pain or, or the elimination of sadness, I mean, it would make sense, but how do you do that? How do you have, how do you have all the good stuff happen and everybody who needs healing and everybody who needs to be set free, how do you have all that happen and the destruction of evil? Because I'm pretty sure there's some of both of that inside of me. And you say, oh, Jamin, you don't know your theology. I mean, Jesus died on the cross for sins. You believe in sin. You're righteous and they're not and those kind of, I know, I know those things. I do. But John the Baptist is still sitting in prison asking this question. And a lot of folks, if we're honest in our hearts of hearts, we can't square it. It becomes a paradox. You know what a paradox is? A paradox is when something, two things are true and they're contradictory at the same time that they're true. And the person of Jesus and his ministry and the words that he read and didn't read out of that scroll are a paradox to me. In the chapter before, Matthew 10, we're in chapter 11 right now, um, Jesus is instructing his disciples about going out two by two and doing ministry and what they're going to encounter and what they need to do and how they need to handle things and what what they need to be wise about and, and those types of things. He's giving them all kinds of, of, of coaching and, and, and readiness about doing this thing. And then in part of it, he says, he says in these verses here, Matthew 10, verses 28 through 31. It's not on the screen. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground outside your father's care. And even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. So the, the judgment that John was hoping Jesus would met out, he didn't, he didn't do it. 
And while John spoke of the wheat and the chaff being separated and the, and the, and the chaff being thrown into unquenchable fire, Jesus tells a parable about the wheat and the tares. You ever remember that one? Where, where in this parable, the, the farmer has this field of wheat and it's doing great. And then it says that an enemy planted tares in the field, which is like weeds. And, and so the, the workers, they, they come up to, once those, those weeds start coming up, they come up to uh, the, the farmer and they say, hey, look, this field has a bunch of weeds in it, tares. You want us to go pull them all up and, and, and throw them out. And the farmer says, we can't. Because if we, tear, if we pull the weeds up, we'll also pull the wheat up. That both will be dislodged and both of those things will be uprooted. And so what I, what I want you to hear right now is that there is this tension between the work of God, the work of the Messiah, and the persistence of evil. There's, there's sort of some simple phrases like that Peter talks about, like God is, is waiting in hopes that as many folks as possible will repent. But to me, that can be cold comfort sometimes. That can be cold comfort when the evils of the day come to my front door. When, when my love, loved ones are impacted or experience danger or hurt or harm. We, we just had the second um, uh, class of, of, uh, of self-defense, women's self-defense yesterday in, the, in Walker Hall down here because our, our female congregants don't wanna get abducted. They don't wanna get raped. They don't wanna get murdered. They don't want somebody to grab them and, and, and something to happen to them. And I'm like, why? So it's a difficult and paradoxical thing to celebrate and say, yes, Jesus came. And Jesus walked among us and Jesus healed and Jesus did those things. And yet evil is still allowed to run loose and rampant in the world. And I do think there is something powerful and necessary here for us to hear not to make I'm not I wasn't trying to make light of those those arguments and stuff because I think they provide the faith that we need in a lot of ways that the judgment that that John thought would come throwing the throwing the tares into the fire when Jesus comes, he's offering repentance to everyone. He is. He's offering it to the Nicodemus, who's the religious leader, meeting him at night. He's offering it to Zacchaeus, the cor corrupt tax collector. And that Jesus' judgments are largely one, like I said before, affirming of all types of life and people in all types of situations. But when he sends his disciples out, he says, you might get killed. You might die. But take heart because you're worth more than a lot of birds. And my, my question is kind of like, but how many birds, Jesus? We're talking like 50 or 100, 
200, he said, many sparrows. I'm like, I wanna know exactly how many sparrows I'm worth before I go out on this path right here. <laughs> and you told me to bring no money. You told me to bring nothing, right? I'm supposed to go out here knowing I'm worth a lot of birds. <laughs> yeah, yeah bring, bring, yeah, bring some extra birds with you to up your worth, right, in the process. Yeah, I gotcha, yeah. But this idea here, it brings me to this place of thinking about the joy and the sorrows of life. You see, I've, I've been to the kind of churches where it's all joy and everything's awesome and Jesus is gonna kick everything's butt and it's gonna, you're gonna get delivered from everything and if you pray hard enough and if, if you show up enough, then all the things that aren't working out for other people, they'll work out for you. And I tried that, I did. I really tried hard. But people still got sick and, and people still weren't healed. And I knew that God was working and I could hear all these other stories of, of some people, but, but I had the sneaking suspicion that maybe it wouldn't be that hard if that's really what God was trying to do. It, it wouldn't be so freaking hard and I didn't have to do so many different things to see the work of God in my life. And what I see present here in Jesus's ministry is this paradox of joy and sadness, this paradox that you can be in one place at one time, that you can actually live the life just like Jesus actually like walked around and he met the people in front of him. And I think one of, the, one of the overlooked gifts of the incarnation, which is just a, you know, sort of a fancy way of saying that God came as flesh, came as a human being, one of the gifts of the incarnation is the understanding, the knowledge that if Jesus only needed to be in one place at one time, then that's all I need to do too. Doesn't solve all the problems. But I've spent time trying to eliminate all the places, all the evils, all the ambiguities in my life, all the sadness, all the pain. I've tried praying it all away. I've tried working it all away. I've tried denying it. I've tried uh, pretending that it wasn't there. And none of that worked. But I look at this gift that Jesus gives us, humanity, and the gift that I see here is that you can just be at your place, at your stage in life, and you can celebrate the victories and you can mourn the incredible losses. I, I, I really want y'all to hear that. I really want you to think about that, that if, if Jesus is actually God in the flesh, that choosing to be in one place at one time to walk around slowly and encounter the people that he encountered and heal those people and provide them relief, but not everyone everywhere all at once, that I think is really important for us as followers of Jesus. There's a, a writer, um, a minister, a, a, a priest. 
who you, some of you have probably no doubt heard of named Henry Nouwen. He, uh, incredible scholar, um, Catholic priest, and he taught at various universities and um, did a lot of great work, wrote countless books. And one day he felt this calling that got to the point that he couldn't ignore anymore to go and work with, with folks who had various emotional and physical disabilities. So this is a highly degreed, highly respected scholar working with the most educated, most able-bodied people in his sphere of the world. And he leaves it to go work with some people who developmentally couldn't ever go beyond like four years or three years old in human development, who had various kinds of, of disabilities to, to, to work and to minister there. And there was a, a lot of grief associated with that change for him, but also this strange mix and mingle of joy. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine having all those pedigrees and going somewhere where nobody there cared anything about them? They cared like, could you help me get to the bathroom? Could you help calm me down if I feel lost? Right? And he had some of his most profound insights about human nature and faith and, and, and the Christian life. And, and in one of the books that he wrote, he wrote, he wrote this book called Hope for Caregivers. And when I was thinking about this passage, I was thinking about Jesus ministering to the people in front of him while John the Baptist is away in prison asking, are you the guy, are you the one? And Jesus being where he was. This, this quote came to mind. I want to read it for you. This will be on the screen. It's from Henry Nouwen. He said, It is good to visit people who are sick, dying, shut in, disabled, or lonely. But it's also important not to feel guilty when our visits have to be cut short or can only happen occasionally. Often we are so apologetic about our limitations that our apologies prevent us from really being with the other when we are there. A short time fully present to a sick person is much better than a long time with many explanations of why we are too busy to come more often. If we are able to be fully present when we are with them, our absence too will bear many fruits. Our friends will say, he visited me or she visited me and discover in our absence the lasting grace of our presence. The lasting grace of our presence. I wonder if that's something that Jesus' ministry, and in this passage right here, I wonder if that's something that's here to teach us that. To give us a little bit of break from the anxieties of believing everything that we're aware of or know of should be solved, resolved, that it should only be joyous and beautiful, and if it's not, we have to run away from it. This is actually at the heart of this idea of hospitality. Hospitality is creating a space where paradox can exist the people that leave the most lasting impressions with us 
aren't the people that can give us all the right answers, all the right suggestions, or what if you tried this, or what if you do that? And there's a time to give advice, for sure. But the people that give us what we need to deepen in our relationship with ourselves, with God, and with others, they can hold the paradox of the joy and the sadness. They can ask these questions without having to rush to give answers that we've all heard and that sometimes fall flat. In verse seven, it says, as John's disciples were leaving, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No. Those who wear fine clothes are in king's palaces. Then what did you go out to see? A prophet. Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. John the Baptist is an incredible guy, worth a whole truckload of sparrows. But I still am gonna be where I'm at. I'm still not gonna go save him. Verse 11, truly I tell you, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. John thought he was going to come in there, he's going to clean it all up. And Jesus said, no. The kingdom of heaven is one of wheat and tares. It's one of paradox. It's one of joy and sadness. And the person who gets that will create spaces that look a lot like the spaces that Jesus created without having all the right answers. Let's pray.